Hello, and welcome to another episode of First Do No Harm, the medical ethics podcast where we discuss different ethical issues that arise in various clinical scenarios. Today, we will be discussing surgical ethics, and we are so pleased to have with us Dr. Michael Amendola, a board-certified vascular and general surgeon with the Central Virginia VA Healthcare System and a professor of surgery at VCU School of Medicine. Dr. Amendola received his medical degree at VCU School of Medicine and subsequently completed his general surgery internship and residency and vascular surgery fellowship at VCU Health System. He completed his master's degree in medical education at Johns Hopkins School of Education. He has conducted research in the field of surgical ethics and developed a novel surgical ethics curriculum for medical students and residents. Thank you so much, Dr. Amendola, for being with us today. So before we get into some of the deeper questions, can you please define surgical ethics for us and our listeners? So, you know, here's the thing. You know, the the question is how... So surgery have its own kind of ethics. And, and the issue for us as surgeons is we have a unique bond with patients that we operate on patients. I just came from the operating room. I saw anatomy in a patient that no one else will see. So in some ways, the doctor-patient relationship is different in surgery. So we have a lot of kind of, um, we feel a lot of ownership of our patients. So I think that drives in some ways, sometimes a lot of conflict potentially within the medical system, advocating for patients. So I think that's one of the reasons that surgical ethics, and that's, that's a term from Peter Angelos, as you probably know from University of Chicago came out with that uh, and defined kind of what it is. And it basically says, look, we have a unique relationship with patients too. We are intimately involved with autonomy and consent issues uh, in surgery because we're constantly trying to figure out, you know, what's going on. Can someone consent? Could they not consent? Do they really understand what they're doing? Uh, the third thing is that there's a lot of innovation in surgery. So surgical innovation is a big uh, component of this too. Um, in terms of protecting the patient and doing the right thing, um, is is a is a uh, paramount thing going on in surgery, especially in vascular surgery. Um, and so that's, that's a big, those are kind of the ultimate kind of big three reasons why surgical ethics is kind of developed and what I've kind of looked at as surgical ethics, even though every day we're in the midst of a lot of ethical conflict within our, within our health system, um, because of the very nature of our practice. So that's a kind of a nutshell of that. Thank you for that. I think you outlined some really great points about the need to define and talk about surgical ethics because surgery does involve some truly important ethical challenges in terms of the unique relationship you have with patients. I don't think this is something we ever really talk about or learn in medical school, though, at least not from the perspective of surgeons. Do you see surgical ethics as a distinct field separate from clinical ethics or an offshoot of medical ethics? And how do you think we should best approach teaching medical students about surgical ethics? You know, I, I think that it should be, there should be an element of it. There should be a carve out of it in terms of clinical ethics, in terms of curriculums uh, that, are, that are being taught. And most critical, you know, most ethical issues or most ethics curriculums for medical students are, um, it's very hard to get people to teach them because they're, you just can't put it in a book. You can't put it on, it's very difficult because it's a dynamic so you really need a kind of a collaborative educational kind of offering to get people to kind of start thinking about issues and think about different angles. Um, and so you got to have a lot of collaboration, a lot of interaction. But yeah, I think it could be, uh, but I'm not here to advocate for that necessarily. I'm here to say that, you know, definitely as a surgeon, I definitely, you know, deal with ethical issues. One of the best rotations I ever had at your medical school, since I graduated from your medical school, was the consul liaison ethics uh, um, you know, uh, rotation, which I think you're going to have Dr. Levinson on as one of your potential speakers, and he's an awesome guy. That I learned more about surgery and more about uh, psychiatry and a lot about ethics on that rotation because constantly you're trying to figure out and kind of, you know, come up with a solution based on a lot of people advocating for different things. So that's actually some really great advice for how students can learn about medical and surgical ethics during their third year clerkships. I think a few of us have actually already had the opportunity to rotate through the consult liaison service in psychiatry, and it comes highly recommended. Now, one thing you mentioned was this unique bond between patient and surgeon. You're the only one that'll see this anatomy. It's one of the fields where you're physically doing something to a patient to help save their lives, and it can be intense, but also a very intimate patient-physician relationship. 
Do you feel that this is still a paternalistic field where you're telling the patient what the best surgery or treatment options are? And how do you incorporate modern ethical shared decision-making into surgery? Or even getting surgeons to think about or discuss the ethical issues they encounter? You know, there's probably an ethics gap, you know, in surgery. I mean, Krishma, you and I know this. We're, we're writing the paper on it now. It's the update, you know, to this uh, Apollo and Barton article from, you know, over 20 years ago saying, look, you know, there's, you know, there's limited offerings uh, in the surgical literature compared to the medical literature. It's interesting because vascular surgery, interestingly, has a lot of articles about ethical, you know, conflict and resolutions of it. But that said, there's usually only one guy who writes most of those articles, which is kind of an interesting thing. And Krishma's smiling because she knows she's, okay. she's looked through that, a lot of these papers and so have I. Um, we talked about this kind of what, you know, surgical ethics is, unique dynamic, informed consent, the ultimate responsibility, and then the surge of innovation. Those are the key things, I think, again, it makes us as surgeons, um, what we're doing. And, you know, here's the thing. Um, we are the ultimate, as surgeons, we are the ultimate, um, we're kind of considered the ultimate authority figure. So that's, a, there's a conflict with that as well. I mean, you know, right now, modern medicine is a team-based approach. So some surgeons really buy into team-based approach, some people do not. So that's kind of that dynamic that you're talking about between autonomy and kind of a paternalistic. You know, if the patient doesn't do well, you feel like it's ultimately your responsibility. I think that's kind of an antiquated way of thinking about it. But we, again, take a lot of ownership because we're the ones they are operating. And there's, it's, a, it's a technically based, um, you know, specialty. And so we take a lot of ownership of everything that we do with the patients. Yeah, that's very true. Is it difficult to get surgeons to buy into discussing surgical ethics, or how do you frame it so they'll want to consider the ethical dilemmas they encounter? As you guys know, surgical stereotypes, you know, surgical ethics is that an oxymoron? You know, we're only technical or not emotive, and are surgeons, can they be sensitive, and can they cut, you know, all, you know, it used to be technically you were, you're graded as a surgeon is based on your technical expertise, but the reality is you have to take care of the whole patient. And especially in an academic institution like VCU, you know, uh, and at the VA, you've got to be able to teach the next generation of surgeons and doctors. So that's the whole key is you're not just taking care of the patient in front of you, you take care of the patient in the future that you're going to take care of. So my job is to make you a better doctor so you can take care of those patients. We've been talking a lot about the importance of acknowledging these ethical issues, but what are some of the main ethical issues you encounter in your day-to-day -day life as a surgeon? As surgeons, we definitely use uh, ethics uh, every day, and there's a balance uh, in between what we're doing. This is kind of, you know, the paternalistic, the autonomy versus the paternalism. And you're going to see this throughout your rotations, your third-year rotations, your fourth-year rotations when you get into your practice where people will go on either side of this teeter-totter between doctor-patient paternalism versus, you know, you know, and that's a traditional approach to, you know, consents and then autonomy, which is what we favor now. And autonomy kind of reigns supreme, um, if you will, uh, especially with consent. So how do you balance that relationship you mentioned between paternalism and autonomy? Um, where do you find the perfect balance in that seesaw, or how do you even achieve that? A lot of times, especially at the, it depends on where you practice. So I practice at the VA. I practice in a, and I practice with patients that have been in the military. So they're used to taking orders. So a lot of times the patients will come to me and they'll say, what would you, you know, whatever you want to do. And I, I tell them, I said, listen, th this is a partnership between you and me. We have to decide together what ultimately is best for you. I can give you my opinion. I can give you my medical opinion. And in a lot of ways, the VA practice is a is a unique practice because the economic forces that are really exerting powers on some physicians in terms of deriving some of their decision making is not present here. And I tell patients that all the time. I said, I you know, the United States government pays me to be a vascular surgeon. If I do 20 cases in a week or if I do one case in a week, I still get paid the same amount to, to render care to you. So you know, I think that identifying some you know forces in terms of what's driving paternalism, I think is key. I think also that, you know, you have to look at individual physicians on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes people will drive decisions, you know, and, and sometimes the physicians under stress, you know, talk about moral, you know, moral injury. You know, we hear a lot about wellness um, and burnout. Really, the term should be moral injury. Burnout means that there's something wrong with me as a surgeon. I can't make it in this, in this environment. 
when in reality the environment's not supporting surgeons, so it's morally injuring me. So I think we should stop saying burnout and start saying moral injury. I think that really puts the conversation on the footing it needs to be to advocate for people. Um, but again, it's a balance, and most of the time, you know, you're going to go with the patient. And there's some there's some times when consent gets really kind of crazy. Uh, and you even get institutional forces pushing you to do one thing, and you've got to really just try to advocate for what's best for the patient. On the flip side of that, have you ever had patients who, you know, like in medicine, a lot of people come in saying, I want this prescription, doctor. Can you just give me this one prescription? Do you find patients saying, you know, I want this surgery to be done, and you saying, well, this may not have as much benefit as they think it's going to have, especially if it's an invasive procedure? Um, how do you weigh the pros and cons or, you know, benefits and harms of that? I think it's a good question. I think you've got to tell patients, look, this is the risk benefit of what we're doing. But then also this is what, you know, we will get rid. This is what we'll be able to treat and managing expectations on the front end. And for us in vascular surgery, there is a certain element of that. A lot of people don't ever wake up. None of you are going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, I'd really like to go see a vascular surgeon today you know, have a bypass on my leg. Nobody's going to want that. So, you know, it, but it's, it's more prevalent in things like plastic reconstructive surgery in terms of cosmetic outcomes and managing, um, managing patients' uh, expectations. So I think you got to have a really serious conversation. You have to identify things with, it, with patients, for example, if they're literate. You have to identify if there's conflict within families. You have to identify elder abuse, which you know we see not only a handful of times over here in a given year. You know you have to identify what's potentially motivating the patient, um, either within the system or without the system, to make the decisions they're making. So, in some ways, you're not you're not exerting paternalism, but you're exerting kind of a you try to differentiate all the forces that are at play for a patient to make the ultimate decision for or against an operation. And again, that changes. We constantly will admit patients and put them on for an operation, and then the day or two later, they they refuse. And that's fine. They can do that. And I tell them that, you know, so they, they need to understand because there's a fair, and you guys are, you guys will see this as you get further along. You're starting to gain kind of authenticity and voice within medicine. And with that comes power. So be very careful because patients will be like, well, I signed my consent two days ago, so I have to do this operation. You literally have to tell them you have the right to refuse up to the point when I take you to the operating room. You know, so it's important that you, you know, kind of de, kind of debulk that power structure and say, look, I'm trying to make the decision that's best for you based on what I know and based on the medicine that I know and the surgery that I know for what I think is going to happen to you. So yeah. again, authentic communication, identifying external forces, you know, identifying bias, you know, that's, you know, another thing in terms of, you know, are you biased in terms of the decisions you're making? Is that an overt bias or is that a hidden bias or an unconscious bias, which is kind of the literature right now kind of describing that? That's a really good point. And I think it's a balance that we'll learn as we progress in our careers. But something that's important to note early on to make sure we're keeping ourselves accountable and, you know, not coercing patients into treatment, but also not setting unrealistic expectations or accepting every wish a patient wants if it will not benefit them. And you also mentioned external forces from the healthcare system. What are some of those forces? Well, I mean, you know, constantly, you know, especially here in any hospital, they're always saying you need to get the patient out. You need to get the patient home. So there's, there's pressure to get the patients out of the hospital. That's a reasonable expectation, right? The problem is that if you have a patient that goes to an environment where it's not safe or not healthy and clean, and they're going to come right back to the hospital, you got to advocate for that patient going into an environment where they can get the care that they need. So that's, that's constantly for us when we undertake amputations in patients, for example, we constantly are trying to get them to rehab or we're trying to get them to skilled nursing facility. You know, we have a gentleman right now that's broken down as three of his amputations. And, and I'm telling the institution, I'm not gonna operate on him again until we actually get him someplace to go. Because we need to have the, we gotta think about the whole patient, right? See. Surgery, I think we constantly just kind of think about the operation. We need to think about the whole system and we're part of the whole system. So what do we need to do to advocate for that patient to get them into a healthy environment so they can heal? Doing the operation in a lot of ways for surgery is the easiest part. It's all this other stuff around it, which makes your practice pretty dynamic and pretty exciting. In that same vein of, of 
patients making decisions that they want certain procedures that the placebo effect does play a big part in medicine. And when someone comes in with a viral illness and says, I want antibiotics as it's going to make me feel better at maybe like the third time, fourth time of asking, maybe some physicians will say, fine, you know, it, the, the patient will feel better. They're thinking that they're doing something productive, but that seems a lot more like, like a much less invasive compromise. So if someone comes in and says, I want shoulder surgery and you say, I don't know if that's going to help. And they're like, I want to do, I want to be proactive. Like I want to try to help myself. And you know, yeah. it's really 50, 50 for you. Antibiotics are on one spectrum, but at what, at how, how, how do you grade that difference between, okay, this is too invasive, too dangerous for me to actually use the placebo right. effect in my practice. Yeah, no. And I think you're right. So I think it's a risk benefit. You're always constantly trying to figure out, okay, and we have patients come all the time and they demand an operation. I tell them, I will not give you that operation. Feel free. We, the VA will pay for you to go get a second opinion. You might go get a procedure in an outpatient center, for example, in vascular surgery, and that vascular surgeon is going to get paid an incredible amount of money to do that procedure. And you're going to be right back here in a month and you're, I'm going to have to take your leg off, for example. So I have that conversation about every week. But you're right, because as surgeons, we, we take a lot. It's, it's a lot of invasive. It's, it's different than giving a pill, right? So that's way the stakes are kind of higher. And I think that's where surgery, you kind of get a hyper kind of ethics kind of situation going on where you're constantly dealing with, ethic, you're trying to differentiate conflict. And that's a lot of, you know, that's a lot of our basis of our ethical, you know, decision making is what's the conflict? Who's on whose side? Who is saying what? And what, what are the facts? But you're right. I mean, you know, you you don't want to do, you you know, you're not doing anybody, you're not doing the healthcare system, you know, any benefit. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Should we be using PPE to be doing elective surgeries? I mean, the, you know, the governor of our state actually had to come out with a, a statement telling hospitals stop doing elective surgeries. And that's because hospitals were just eating up PPE to keep their bottom line going. So again, identifying what these forces are in medicine and being aware of them and educating patients and saying, this is what's going on. And that's, I think that's part of it too. You have a patient says, I want my shoulder operate on. You need to tell them that's not going to help you. If anything, that's going to hurt you. But sometimes you can't get through to them and you really need to enlist family. You need to identify there's an underlying psychiatric. You need to make sure there's not secondary intent, secondary gain. Um, make sure there's not another reason why they're, they're asking for an operation. But you're right. It's and you're right. The placebo, you know, and that's. I mean, that's 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 my mother. My mother goes and shakes the primary cares. Give me, you know, give me antibiotics. Like you know, she like kind of assaults the guy. You know, so I mean, and, and the patients can wear you down. You'll see this during your third year. You'll be like, oh my god, these patients are wearing me down, and they're they're good at it. So you got to make sure you balance your life. Make sure you get away from medicine. Make sure you spend time away, you recharge, because you're going to see a lot of crazy and interesting things in the middle of your third year. But you remember, that's not everything going on in the whole world. You know, so you got to recharge and then come back with a fresh perspective and not, not, not give in to the patient, right? The one that's my mother shaking the primary care, I want the antibiotics. Would you say that the placebo effect does have a place in surgery and say, you know what, maybe oh. do, do, doing this invasive thing, if it will make the person feel better, or, you know, just, just at least say, I, I am trying to do any, everything I can. Right. We see that we, you know, we'll do, for example, we'll put um, a needle in the artery and then we'll put dye in there to see if there is a way that we can open up arteries and increase blood flow. And a percentage of patients we can't, we'll just put the dye in there and shoot the pictures and we bring them out of the, out of the, out of the, uh, out of the operating room. And they're like, my leg feels great. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. They're like, no, 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 it's great. Whatever you did was perfect. So that's like, that's classic placebo effect, you know, and you're just like, okay, well then we'll just follow you along then. I mean, I mean, which, so you, we didn't take the, undertake the operation with a placebo effect in mind, but we definitely stumbled upon it because we didn't provide an intervention. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Um, the other thing is you can see reverse problems. So we take people, patients to the operating room we sedate them, you know, the patient I just had, we just operate on now, he's got a paralytic. So if he's got any kind of back problems or pain, that will get worse because we paralyze them. He, and then his back wakes up and he gets a lot of pain. So that's a classic thing that we see. So sometimes you can make things worse, unintentionally so in patients. So you really got to be careful when you offer an operation, but that's considered in, in surgery, the highest complexity of thinking is, 
this patient meets the threshold for an operation, that means you can do the operation. The real question, the ethical question is, ought you to do it? Is it in the best interest for the patient to do it? And now with the pandemic going on, that's more of a justice thing. What's the just distribution of medical resources that are limited in nature with an ongoing pandemic? And so that's why for us in surgery, we have seen a huge reduction in total number of cases we've been doing, but now we're just starting to come back from that um, to take care of the patients, a lot of patients that have delayed their care. That's a really great point, that more people in healthcare should consider the question, is this in the best interest of the patient? But also, is this a beneficial, just use of resources? We're a little more cautious about that now since we're in a pandemic, but I think before that, most physicians would consider conceding to the patient, ordering that extra scan or doing the extra procedure if they thought it would help. I saw a patient who had chronic back pain. This was in the emergency department, and a lot of surgeons, it seemed like, had acquiesced to his need. Um, and I think it's um, perhaps related to this need of like instant gratification, and it seems like surgery can really provide that. So this gentleman, when we looked at his x-ray, it was almost unrecognizable. There was so much metal. Um, and so the physician I was working with in the ED said, you know, I think you would really benefit from physical therapy. And he said, no, like I need relief now. Um, and well, so I right. think that kind of plays into um, like how the patient is going to demand, um, you know, some right. kind of treatment. I completely agree. And that's, and that's kind of our society. I mean, that's, you know, that's our society. You know? we, we can access the world on our phone. We can order, we can order food to come to us instantaneously. I can watch a movie on my phone. I can call anybody in the world. I can text whoever I want in the world. I can put all kinds of funny things around the text. Why can't you fix my back pain? So that's the thing is that these are complex problems. A lot of times they involve complex solutions. Back pain in particular, I will tell you that a lot of times operating on patients, they don't get any relief. I definitely agree with that. And this actually brings me to another question I have. I remember seeing a patient with chronic back pain who had a spinal cord stimulator implanted. He was so happy to have that pain gone, went back to his daily life, and then a few weeks later said it started to hurt and feel like bugs were crawling all under his skin, so he begged the surgeon to take out the stimulator. He was opened back up and another surgery was done to remove the device. How do you balance offering these new innovations with the potential that they might not work and have to perform yet another surgery with additional harms to the patient? It's an interesting thing to talk about um, industry influence against physicians and, and influencing practices. I think, you know, the best thing you can do as a physician or as a surgeon is to look at the data, seriously interrogate the data, think about what they're trying to tell you or sell you, and try to do what's best for your patients. And you tell them. I mean, you know, and I mean, we put in endografts, which are graphs on the inside of the artery for, for aortic aneurysms. Um, we tell patients when they come, you know, you have the anatomy that we can fix you on the inside, which would be two small nicks in your groin and you go home the next day. But I tell them, we are going to have the company come and size you for the graph. The graph will, you have to be observed for it. So you manage the expectations of a new device, but you, you don't go out on a limb. You get, these are patients, these are real people with real problems. And, you know, so you really got to, and it's up to you you know, and what I, what I call you, you're developing kind of a, um, um, you're trying to, you know, trying to develop it. You're developing a kind of a moral uh, compass in surgery because a lot of times, even within the medical community as a surgeon, you can wave your hand, start talking a bunch of gibberish and people will back off and just let you do whatever you want to do. So you really have to have an authenticity of your actions. And a lot of that, especially with new devices and innovation is based on the data. How many patients has this been in? What have been the results? Has FDA approved it? You know, most of the time, understanding what FDA approvals are. Are they, are they pre-market analysis, PMA-based uh, approvals for FDA? Are they 501C, which is approval based on a previous product? What are they actually approved for? So, for example, in, in wound care, you can, there's a thing, there's, a, there's, there's an approval for FDA for wound management, and then there's a thing for improved wound healing. There's only like three products in the world that have wound healing approval from FDA. Wound management is the same class as if you took water and put it on a wound. You're managing the wound and you're managing the water. It doesn't mean you're making the patient better, but there's an incredible amount of money and influence and push um, on wound care specialists to use all kinds of different things 
uh, when in reality, a lot of it is not well studied. So looking at the data, thinking about the clinical problem and advocating ultimately for the patient and say, can I really look myself in the mirror and, and do this procedure on this patient? So, I mean, it's high stakes and you really have to really think about what you're doing because again, it's, it's a human being on the other end of that scalpel or at the other end of the exam table or you know, if we're on the, if we're on telemedicine on the other end of the Zoom, we have we take care of people, and that's what makes healthcare complicated. Is we're not building iPhones, we're not building cars, we're not trying to get to space. We're trying to take care of ultimately one of the most complex, you know, organisms, uh, you know, on the face of the planet, if not in the universe, the human being. So there's a lot, there's a lot there. So you got to be, you got to really think about what you're doing. I have a question related to that. Um, I read a case study where a patient needed a pretty complex uh, procedure and the surgeon could perform the procedure, but the surgeon thought that the patient would have a much better outcome at a larger hospital um, that performs the procedure more often because this physician was practicing in a smaller hospital. Then the administration said, no, do the, do the, do the procedure here, probably for funding reasons, um, financial reasons. And, um, and so my question was, so what is the role of, like, how do you balance that if you know that you can do a procedure, but maybe there would be a significantly better outcome at a different institution? And then how do you deal with the administration in scenarios like that? So that's, you know, it's an interesting thing to talk about um, industry influence against physicians and, and influencing practices. I think, you know, the best thing you can do as a physician or as a surgeon is to look at the data, seriously interrogate the data, think about what they're trying to tell you or sell you and try to do what's best for your patients. And you tell them, I mean, you know, and I mean, we put in endografts, which are graphs on the inside of the artery for, for aortic aneurysms. Um, we tell patients when they come, you know, you have the anatomy that we can fix you on the inside, which would be two small nicks in your groin and you go home the next day. But I tell them, we are going to have the company come and size you for the graph. The graph will, you have to be observed for it. So you manage the expectations of a new device, but you, you don't go out on a limb. You get, these are patients, these are real people with real problems. And, you know, so you really got to, and it's up to you, you know, and what I, what I call you, you're developing kind of a, um, kind of a moral uh, compass in surgery, because a lot of times, even within the medical community as a surgeon, you can wave your hand, start talking a bunch of gibberish and people will back off and just let you do whatever you want to do. So you really have to have an authenticity of your actions. And a lot of that, especially with new devices and innovation is based on the data. How many patients has this been in? What have been the results? Has FDA approved it? You know, sometimes you've got to be the rebel and you got to step outside of, you know, the bounds. But again, keeping the patient in the center of what, you, what you're trying to do and being honest. I also read about the, this idea of family presence during resuscitation. And it reminded me of that when you were talking about the large family. Um, right. So some studies show that there's some benefit in terms of grieving if some family members are there. Um, during resuscitation, like CPR, after the patient codes. On the other hand, I was also thinking that there's supposed to be a potential for some emotional harm um, and also right. HIPAA violations um, if the, the patient may not want, you know, all of the information discussed in the room to be known right. to family members. And then the final thought was in terms of age, you know, I don't, it doesn't seem like children should be allowed, but is that a good thing? So I wondered, like, what you've seen, um, what your thoughts are on that, on those three points. So, uh, you know, there's, there's a literature on that, and it, it, you're right, it kind of goes on both sides. Some people say heavy involvement, some people say no involvement, some people say moderated kind of involvement. Um, it's interesting because the World Bioethics um, con Congress that um, Karishma just presented on, and I, was, I went to or went to virtually, one of, the, uh, one of the papers was on actually narratives, not from the family members, but from the providers and looking at narratives and looking at themes within narratives. And my suggestion to them, because I attended the Zoom for that author afterwards, um, she's a neurologist at, um, at uh, the Brigham, uh, but she was at, at Sinai. And she, I said to her, you should look at narratives of family members, because I think that'll give you a lot of information. What I try to do in my practice is I, you know, if where someone's coding, for example, on the floor, I will take the family out of the room and I say, we are going to actively code your loved one their heart is stopped, this is what's going on. And then usually what I do in the midst of the code is I will come out and give them kind of a play-by-play. -play. 
we have continued to do CPR now for 20 minutes. We have continued to give respiratory, you know, uh, drugs. We have no, no return of a heartbeat. You know, brain death occurs at three minutes. So you give them data to start formulating in their mind the reality. So you got to get them into the reality. The same thing is in the operating room. For example, we operate on somebody in the operating room and then their heart stops and then we start coding them in the operating room. I will uh, basically pack the wound, break scrub, make sure there's adequate resuscitation. So usually anesthesia is leading that effort. My residents and my fellows are leading that. And I will leave the operating room, come out and talk to family and tell them this is what's going on. This is what we're doing. Um, you know, you need to be aware of this. He might, you know, this particular patient might or might not live. They are shocked, but they need to know that now and they need to hear it out of your mouth as a surgeon. So kind of assuming that kind of ultimate responsibility. Um, but you're right. I think a lot of it, and I think a lot of it just depends on how people deal with death. Um, and a lot of it probably speckles that literature in terms of observation um, for, uh, for code events in hospitals. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, I think that's where you get a variability in the response. I think you raised some really important points and valuable tips about how to deliver important updates and also bad news, you know, to make sure the family understands what the situation is, because it can be very delicate and important to make sure they know what is going on. In that same vein, how do you incorporate family members into that shared decision-making process when you're informing patients about their options for surgery? very important. Um, I think you figure out kind of where the patient is. Sometimes patients don't want family. Sometimes they want family. Sometimes they need family. They just don't want to ask for it. So I think you've got to allow that. Remember that the consent process is a process. It's not a one-hour conversation, not a five-minute conversation. Sometimes it'll take place over days, weeks, months. You document that as a, as a surgeon a lot of times. You document who you're talking to in terms of the shared decision-making and you keep people accountable. So when you have family members and they come and a patient has a bad outcome or a complication and they say, you never said that. And you say, you know, wife, or you say daughter, I, you remember you, you were in the room on our clinic when I discussed these risks and benefits with you. So you hold people accountable for that decision-making. I'm not saying, you know, you, I'm not saying you pin them against the wall, but you tell them. And then a lot of times what's interesting is you will have family members that are core family members that will come for the decision, but then people who just show up out of nowhere. And those are the ones that usually start attacking you because there's internal family dynamics where they weren't brought in initially for the decision. And now they're there and they want to know what's going on and they want to know why things are happening. And you, you use authenticity of voice. You say, you know, I sat down with your father and your mom and your other siblings and we went through the risks and benefits. Well, I wasn't involved in that conversation. I understand that. I think even in that conversation, we tried to call you to enlist you on that conversation so you could listen in. So I, I don't know what to tell you. I, you know, I try to do the best that I can with the variables that I have. So that's, that's kind of the decision. That's kind of the, the, the kind of the narrative that I use a lot of times with patients. But, um, and you're going to get into heated, especially as surgeons, you get into heated conversations with people. And I'm not talking like, I hate you, Dr. Amendola. I'm, I'm talking things like, I'm going to find where you live and kill you. So those, I mean, those are, and, you know, people are emotional. People are upset. People have, there. there's a lot of, there's just a lot of emotive kind of stuff going on. So your job is to try to diffuse things the best you can. A lot of times when I talk to patients, I'll actually sit at the same level Sometimes, even if it's a really bad situation, I will sit on the floor. That's the best way to diffuse a conversation uh, with someone. You can use that with your patients. Is if they put it, if they're at a higher level, then they seem to they seem to kind of calm down and ratchet it down. Again, taking the power structure where you are as a provider, as a surgeon, and de, de kind of defunding it to kind of an equal stance that helps the communication immensely. It really does. Do you think as students, we should be taught these mediation skills as well, since it is so prevalent and something we'll likely encounter for the rest of our careers? Absolutely. And be aware and look for them in your third year. You're going to run into providers that are great communicators. You're going to run into providers and be like, I can't believe this guy's a doctor. I can't believe she's a doctor. I can't believe she's a surgeon. So you've got to look for the good, learn from the bad, 
and 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 learn and think about it. The other thing, the other thing I can mention to you guys is, you know, there's the Kubler Ross stages of of uh, of death and dying, which also have been applied for for illness. That helps me immensely in terms of paradigm when I'm talking to patients to figure out exactly where they are. It really helps nursing staff too when you kind of provide that paradigm and say, look he is angry because he's in the anger stage. He's trying to get through this. He's, and then you'll see patients in multiple stages at one time, they might be angry and they might be intellectualizing what's going on. But eventually what you're trying to do is get them to the point where they accept what's going on with their medical condition. But it's important, it's really important. And, and you guys are learning that and you'll see when you get into the wards, how it, you learn it so much. You, you learn kind of a clinical acumen of how you handle patients in the hospital, how you actually become a doctor. And that's where being in the hospital and looking at the cultures of different rotations and different specialties are so important to you because you will interface. So as surgeons, we interface with as a vast surgeon, we interface with almost every specialty in the hospital, rehabilitation, nephrology, internal medicine, cardiology, um, you know, everything. The only thing I don't interface with over here at the VA is pediatrics. But even then I'll get, you know, calls from my neighbors saying my kid's got a fever. What do I do? So, you know, you always a doctor no matter where you practice. So keep that in the back of your mind. Going back to something you mentioned earlier, can you just walk us through the informed consent process and how you would give informed consent to a patient for surgery? The actual piece of paper is, all, is technically known as the permit. People will commonly call it the consent. The consent is really the consent, informed consent process, okay? So the precondition, you know, it, the, the big thing in the information exchange is disclosure. And that's where, you know, the question Bennett asked about, like, how many of these actually have you done, Dr. Amendola? How many of these cases? And I tell people, I'm like, we've done X number of these cases. These are our complications. You know, and a lot of times in the morning, you know, patients will ask me right before we go to the operating room. And, and sometimes for comedic relief, I'll say, this is the second time I've done this operation. And they look at me and I said, I'm kidding you. I've done it hundreds of times and not thousands of times. So part of it is, you know, jocularity, but also part of it is authenticity of saying, I've only done this X number of times. Patient understanding, that's, that's kind of what their, you know, what their, uh, their intellectual ability is, their ability to, you know, figure out what's going on. And then decision-making, patient decision-making, what's motivating them to or to, to not get an operation. Um, in terms of the precondition, Remember that the, that there's two different things in precondition. There's capacity and competency. Capacity is what you decide as a surgeon or as the physician. Okay, this is the mini mental status exam. This is at, you know you hear you'll hear this on rounds all the time. Alert and oriented times four to name person place uh, date and do they understand kind of why they're here. Uh, capacity can come and go. It can be affected by the medical condition. It's again a clinical assessment. Competency is a legal assessment, okay? And it's that's established by legal means. So um, as you might or might not know, there's been kind of a recent controversy in the last year with VCU deciding who has competency and who ultimately made that decision and then what legal authority took over the decision-making for patients. If the patient cannot speak English or they have or the, they, they can't speak English or they have a limited intellectual ability, he, disclosing that to disclosing something to that patient, they're not going to understand. If they have family members that won't even let you talk to the patient, then the other the other two are kind of null and void. Okay. But just remember it's these three things together. I have a question for when um, a patient is not able to make their own decision and you have a surrogate decision maker. Um, my understanding is that they're supposed to use what's called surrogate judgment. So essentially, this is what they what they would have wanted. Have you encountered scenarios um, where the it was clear that the surrogate was making decisions that is not what the patient wanted, or it doesn't seem interested in what the patient would have wanted, but instead it's in the surrogate's best interest or some other set of interests? Yeah. So that's that. You're absolutely right. So the surrogate is supposed to advocate for the wishes of the patient. And the, the problem is that a lot of times patients don't understand that when they sign, you know, the surrogate kind of decision-making paperwork, they feel like it's just whatever the surrogate thinks is the best thing. In reality, in the letter of the law, they're supposed to advocate for what the patient, so that indicates that they're supposed to have conversations and an understanding. So, you know, so that's, you know, that's why 
you know, the federal law um, is that if you go to any hospital, you're supposed to be offered a living will and really information to kind of start that decision-making process because there's a lot, and there's several studies that show that the majority of the healthcare dollars spent in any individual patient's life, the majority of it's in the last six weeks of their life. And so in a lot of times in the last six days of their life. So figuring out what the shared decision-making, and then a part of that is also a distribution of a healthcare resource, right? So before we were, you know, patients would always be like, we needed you to do everything. In reality, even now in the midst of the pandemic, because you kind of have a rationing of healthcare in some regards, in some places, patients ultimate, I want this and the family wants this goes out the door. But in terms when there is a conflict, you want to try to resolve that conflict. So you need to discuss it with the family. You know, the best thing you can do is have an open discussion. And I think the second best thing you can do is get an ethics consult, bring in an external team that deals with this all the time and who can, you know, take the time to interview all the family because that's their job and get kind of input on say, okay, well, what was the, what was your mother's desires here? If you think the surrogate is not just making that decision, then let's talk about it. Let's have an open conversation. And here's the thing is that, so, you know, if you have a married couple, then uh, the, your wife or your, or your husband is the lead kind of decision maker if you're incapacitated. What's interesting is in the state of Virginia. So each state has its own set of laws. In the state of Virginia, if you are separated, that is you have filed for divorce, as long as you are still legally married, which you are, you're just separated, then your separated spouse can make decisions for you. You can see an inherent conflict with that. <laughs> so yeah. that's where you get that's where you get an ethics consult. So you've got to really ferret out those issues. Um, the next kind of line is direct bloodline. So it would be would be siblings are kind of in a class all their own, but children are usually uh, usually make the next kind of level of decision, and that's usually the majority rules. You will see fights among children um, in terms of what's kind of best. You will also see extenuating circumstances. I had a patient come to the hospital when I was in Georgia in practice. Um, she had necrotic legs and she needed bilateral amputations above her knee. And I could not get the family to come to the hospital at all. So I was like, what's with these, you know, these rotten kids? So I, you know, I basically had to browbeat them to come to the hospital. And I got into the hospital and they said, well, our mother has mental illness and she used to physically and sexually abuse us when we're children. So now, now I'm in an interesting situation because I've got to have a decision-making from, from, from the children, but in some ways they can't really make a decision for her because of previous relationships with her that were very strained and not ideal. So you get in these kind of weird kind of situations. And I think a lot of it, an ethics consult really will help you differentiate. So what would you do in that situation? You know, if there's no clear cut direction of who should be the surrogate decision maker. Yeah, so what did you, what do you all think? What do you think I should do? I know what I did, so I, so I already know. But what do you all think I should do? I, I figured that if you started from the definition of surrogate decision maker, and if, I guess, if you go scratch, you know, a little bit more beneath the surface between surrogate decision maker, and if the next line says, like, within the best interest of the patient, I, I, like, at that point, if, if that is where you define it, like, that already gives me the answer in terms of, you know, this is no longer an, an appropriate definition, like, this is, this has to be reclassified somehow, the surrogate decision maker has, has to be reclassified, and the children's role in the decision-making has to be reclassified. So I guess it depends on your definition of surrogate maker and legal definition. Right. So yeah. I, I would probably say that the, the children at that point are not, I, I, I would say that they're probably not the best surrogate decision makers in that situation. Right. My first thought is to like, by way of analogy, um, like if you read a research journal and there's a conflict of interest there, it's like, that doesn't mean the research is a bad, you should throw it all out. It just means that you should sort of question it a little more fully because um, there's at least potential for that bias. And so my first thought is to approach it in a similar way. It doesn't disqualify them, but it maybe is reason to ask additional questions and be a little bit more um, probing on into, into their sort of rationale for their decision. But ultimately yeah. I think the principle of, you know, do no harm, autonomy, and the whole idea of a surrogate decision maker and substitute judgment, I think that 
if it did seem clear that the conflict was preventing them from making the best decision for the patient um, or what the patient would have wanted, I, I think that you would have to, it, it seems to me that you might have to substitute your professional judgment um, for the safety and well-being of the patient. This was, this was interesting. So this predated um, kind of the legal uh, and the federal laws with same-sex marriage. And so in Georgia at the time, each state had its own set of laws that had to deal with same-sex. This particular patient, this woman had a same-sex partner that she lived with, okay? So Georgia had a provision in their law which basically said, look, if you have a relationship with anyone, which is a broad way of defining any, anyone, same-sex, opposite-sex, what have you, that person, if they live with you and they know your desires, have a reasonable standing to make a surrogate decision making for you. Okay. So, so what I did was I found that out. I brought in that, uh, that, you know, her partner and I sat down with the children and her partner and I said, what would she want? And the partner said, I've discussed this with her. She never wants an amputation. She knew she had chronic wounds on her leg. She the surrogate, uh, her her partner had gone away for the week and come back and the woman was found down. So she was probably down about 48 hours. So she, there was other mitigating circumstances. She was a multi-organ failure, you know, an amputation at that point probably would not have saved her. Now, again, in surgery, you, you can do the surgery, but the ethical decision is what ought you to do, right? So I said, do you think she would want to just pass and not have the operation? She said, yes. So I let her die because that was, that was my understanding of what her wishes were. So really it was an informed refusal of surgery based on a surrogate decision maker. And that decision we made concurrently with the children. So they, they had input into it too. They were, so it was a shared decision-making process, but that's, that's, that's how I resolved that conflict. And that, was, that always stuck out in my mind because it, it's just such a, you know, contrary example because it's got two major kind of plot twists in it, if you will, um, especially children that were estranged from their mother. Because most of the time, children are not estranged from their from their parents, but in this case, it was an extreme estrangement, um, which really had had an interesting kind of you know twist in terms of the case. If you did have to do the surgery and it was, you know, an emergent situation, what happens in those situations? So you didn't have time to yeah. have an ethics consult or go to court. So, yeah. So it's every, so, you know, emergency surgery uh, in an incapacitated patient, the, the law is uh, state-based um, and institutionally kind of driven from policy. So, um, so for example, at the VA, um, as a vascular surgeon, the VA, place trust in me to do the right thing, to operate on patients, render care, and then afterwards, this is a completely crazy concept, go and get the consent for the operation that I've already done. So that's kind of like the VA's ultimate way of dealing with the paperwork. At BCU, because of the trauma setting, uh, the way that the consents are done, you have two physicians have to agree of equal size, equal training or similar training that the patient needs an operation and then you can take them to the operating room without a permit. And typically what I do is I, I fill out the, the permit, I fill it all out and then at the bottom I say, patient is incapacitated due to this and it's my assessment with in conjunction of this surgeon that the patient should get this operation for salvage of their life. Um, and uh, this document will be made. And then so I do all that and I, I also sign the blood side I put that in the chart and then I also write a note that basically says that documents available for patients families to review and I'm happy to decide to determine you know to sit down with them and go through the decision making and then when families come after the fact I always show them the consent and I said this is the actual procedure that we did and to show them that you know I just didn't just run them off to the operating room but I had you know if they were there and they could sign then we would have them sign if you have someone that you can answer on the phone you can get a phone consent uh, from someone. So for example, say someone needs to have their gallbladder out, they're in so much pain that they've been sedated, but we need to get consent from say uh, the next of kin. It's always, uh, it's always good to do that. I will tell you, if you disclose to a family member, you operate on someone and they pass away, your best bet is to have the family member actually come to the hospital and tell them and disclose that to them. You don't want to tell them 
at home and then have them drive to the hospital. Okay, so there's an incredible amount of emotional distress there and they potentially could get in a car accident and they're gonna make things worse. So I always tell patients, family, please just come to the hospital and let's, let me disclose to you and tell you what's going on with your loved one. And they have a sense of what you're trying to tell them. And so, uh, but it's important that you protect again, remember who is your patient. When the patient has died, your, your real patient is the patient's family and not the patient you were operating on because you gotta, you know, you're trying to take care of everyone involved in the care of that patient. That's a really good lesson. There's this, um, there's sure. this idea of hospital beds, and it's the more you have, the more you use. And there was a study sure. that was done in, in the Northeast where there was some part of a town that got a lot more surgeries than the other one. And they did a study, and eventually it turns out that the hospital that was closer to that side just had more surgeons. So I, was, yeah. I wanted to ask what your opinion was on the ethics of resource dis distribution and theoretically if like the society of surgeons got like a billion dollar grant and they said hey let's make more surgeons you it, it would right. be reasonable to to assume that that would lead to more surgeries and where would the ethics be do you think on you know creating resources that you know will be used whether they you know they need to be used or not yeah so uh, you know I, those, those are all great points and a couple couple responses that you look at, and I know, I know some of you were involved in global surgery, you look at global surgery and you look at global initiatives, you know, you look at the WHO, you know, the WHO has a hard decision to make. You know, if they're going to spend $30,000 in a particular region, what, what makes more sense? Sending a surgeon there to do 100 hernia repairs or send 60,000 polio shots? I mean, you know, so that's, you know, that's kind of the, so it's a kind of a distribution. So from the global kind of perspective, the global medicine perspective, I think surgeons have a limited role because really these are first world problems. Vascular surgery, for the most part, reconstructive vascular surgery is a first world problem. I do third world operations all the time. I take, and what I mean by that is patients, a lot of times in the third world, if they have a vascular insufficiency, they usually get an amputation. I do that operation here a lot based on disease basis, okay? The other thing is, if you look at specialties, it's very interesting because the distribution of surgeons are very particular. So, for example, there are more vascular surgeons in the city of Boston than there are in the states of North, South Dakota, and Wyoming, Idaho, and parts of Nebraska combined. So, we don't have in vascular surgery, we don't have necessarily, I think, I don't think we have a, a work shortage. We have a distribution shortage. So then it gets to the question, you're absolutely right, is how do you distribute talent and surgical talent? Now, so for us as vascular surgeons, we, do, we operate a lot. We see a lot of clinical patients. We follow our patients longitudinally because we know that the operation we do has got only but so much durability. We know we're dealing with a systemic atherosclerotic state. So what's affecting their heart or maybe their neck arteries, we're going to see potentially they're going to lose their kidneys. They're going to have to put an AV axis and then we might have to do a bypass on their legs. So they're constantly, we're constantly dealing with all the different ramifications of the disease state. So there's what a surgeon does is not always necessarily operating. We do a lot of ultrasound and vascular surgery. So those are other components to our practice, but you're right. If you hire, if a hospital system hires a surgeon, then they're going to want, you know, they're going to want that surgeon operating. And if you look at the recent pandemic, the major, just the major issue for all the hospital systems is that surgery is a major driver of revenue for all the hospitals. So in some ways, that is a argument for a single payer unified system that does not rely on economic drivers. You know, and what's going on in vascular surgery right now is that there's a lot of talk about outpatient vascular surgery where vascular surgeons get paid for, for, for procedures and the percentage different, it's several orders of magnitude different from a several hundred dollars to get a procedure in the hospital to, to you know, upwards of $20,000 outside the hospital for the same exact procedure. How can you justify that? I mean, that's that's a huge, you know, that's a huge influence. Yeah, I just have a quick comment to make on that too. I think resource allocation huh? for surgery is especially tricky because, like you mentioned, the WHO might would rather give out sixty thousand vaccines than do a hundred surgeries, right. especially when you're bringing right. in surgeons from the U.S. to go abroad to help out these areas, and then they leave. So, what happens the rest of the year when people are left? 
So the biggest thing I think that people are working towards is creating an infrastructure in these countries um, right. where they can create a workforce themselves and, and fulfill that need. The only problem with that is that it takes like seven years to train surgeons. So there's a big lag. Sure, you can start training them now, but you won't actually see an effect until seven, eight years later, when by then those patients obviously will get the care that they need. So it is a, a, a challenge and a balance. Yeah. And you, and you know, you've got, you know, I think you have a fair amount of experience with that Karishma in terms of your your previous iteration uh, and your nice picture with the president when you're handing, he's handing you the, the nice award that you got for that. But, um, I, but so here's the thing is how do you do it virtually? And I mean, that's kind of where we are now. I mean, there's some operative approaches, especially for robotics that you can do remotely. And a lot of that literature and a lot of that technical support, a lot of that came from NASA in terms of if we go to Mars and someone needs their appendix out, can someone in Richmond, Virginia sit at a terminal and do it remotely? It's interesting because I, I have a lot of there are a lot of you know surgeons on staff at MCV that that really like to go to third world countries and do outreach, but I think it's a bigger picture. It's not. It, it's more. It's got to be more than just how one feels when they go and they feel satisfied. You have to really. What's the net and net outcome here for the patients on the ground there? And you're absolutely right. Once you go away, what happens in terms of supporting those patients? But we're in a really interesting time. The pandemic, I think, is really going to redefine a lot of American medicine. I might be wrong about that, but I, I get the feeling, at least for telemedicine, for yeah. tele-education, which is kind of what you guys are living, you're like the you're like the exam the case example for that right now. But it's you know how do we do that, and you know how do we provide effective medical uh, education to to medical students and residents and higher level trainings. How do you see the impact later on, especially now that you've seen so many patients have been um, delaying care? Have you, will you see an impact on that? Have patients already seen that impact? Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's taking care of the non-COVID patient that's affected by COVID. And that's for us in vascular surgery, it's important because we have to have some element of surveillance. So our, our strategy has been here is to expand our clinics on Saturday and Sunday. So we actually run a vascular ultrasound clinic on Saturday and Sunday. It allows our patients, which a lot of them have vulnerable comorbidities for COVID. So um, we have to be smart about it. I think we've got to really rethink about what's going on in terms of telemedicine. Uh, think about when we're acting, when we're functioning in the hospital. I mean, the hospital works nine to five for the most part, five days a week illness happens 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So why don't we have more of a dynamic kind of scheduling? Um, You know, do we actually have to have people physically on site to render care? And a lot of what we're doing now in terms of our practice is converting out of a face-to-face basis and more of a telemedicine basis. And that's been, you know, I think that's something that's crucial for your generation of physician to learn what the tools of the trade are for telemedicine. Do you see your fellow surgical colleagues discussing ethics more due to the pandemic or, you know, just in the past few years because of innovation and everything? Yeah, absolutely. So the, you know, in surgery, the discussion has always kind of been on the innovation side, but when the pandemic came and and there was a, I listened to one of the first pod, well, not podcasts, one of the first Zooms and um, a prominent surgeon in Seattle who is a fantastic aortic surgeon, military guy, his quote was, your job as a surgeon in the midst of a pandemic is to not operate. And when I heard that quote, I was like, there's something going on here that's bigger than I ever thought was going on. So teaching people to you know, not operate and think in terms of their system, which for us as surgeons, sometimes to get outside our head is hard. But that was crucial. That that quote, when I heard that, I completely changed. I, I shut down all my cases. And this was before the state demanded it and before the VA demanded it. I rethought how I was going to have surgical staff in the hospital. Um, I took basically uh, took call with... Um, with my junior partner and cover the hospital. I'm just worried about getting so far behind that I won't be able to catch up. It'll take me, you know, three years to catch up. Do you have any advice when there's friction between two or more ethical principles, kind of what's a cornerstone that we can come back to, to just get a good baseline and really reassess and, you know, feel good about the decision we're making? I, I think you talk to, you talk to people, you talk to your ethics panel, you talk to your partners, 
you talk commonly, I will talk to trainees. I say, what do you think we should do here? You know, so again, diffuse power relationships to say, Dr. Amdol is going to make the decision. We're going to let him make the decision. No, we're all on the same team. The patient, myself, my trainees, the medical students, all the medical students come. What do you think we should do here? And usually when you do that and you get a consensus among the group, when there's conflict between two principles, usually you can kind of ferret that out. Get as much information as you can and just ultimately keep asking yourself, am I doing what's right for the patient here? Thank you so much, Dr. Amendola, for speaking with us today. I think we all learned a lot about the various issues encountered in surgical ethics and also the important fact that surgeons should probably be discussing medical ethics more since it is so prevalent in the field. I think you left us with some really great advice on how we should be approaching ethics in this field, though. We congratulate you guys on starting this. I think collaborative educational efforts across the country are important in a variety of different media is very important. Um, and I think you guys need to talk about the things. Let's start talking about the right things in medicine. Let's start talking about how we approach some of these problems. And I look forward to watching your podcast grow and uh, I'll see you on the wards. Thank you, Dr. Amendola. Well, this has been another episode of First Do No Harm on surgical ethics. We hope you enjoyed it and learned a lot. As always, for more information on this episode and to learn more about what was discussed, please check out our website, firstdonoharmpodcast.com.